Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Marxism, we are told, is is fatalistic. It has, as they say, a teleological view of human history, which means to say Marxism is allegedly a sort of new form of Christianity, which sees all of history as preordained from the beginning, as having a goal, an end goal to which we are ineluctably moving nothing we can do about it it's inevitable communism is this is the the end goal just as for christianity you know the um kingdom of god on earth is the end and it's been decided in advance basically that is the accusation karl popper famously argued uh, along these lines and he said that marxism is pseudo-scientific because of this prediction, this this prediction of communism, which cannot be proven or disproven, and therefore it is no, no scientific value. It's just meaningless, essentially, according to him. More recently, uh, as we've been learning a bit about in the previous session, postmodernism has attacked Marxism in a similar way for having or being a meta-narrative, that is, having an overarching theory uh, which says that human society develops and it develops towards, of course, communism. Now, these there's, there's a political significance to these attacks. So it's not just that they are attacks on Marxism, right? It's, it's very significant that they pick this point out because, of course, this means eliminating the belief that you can have a new kind of society, that you can change society in a fundamental way. And this is very much what, in different ways, Popper and the postmodernists subscribe to. In other words, it's unscientific, it's meaningless to fight against the status quo. Um, You can't ever fight for something that hasn't existed because you don't know what that thing is like, and it's basically meaningless to talk about it. That is essentially the position that is being put across, which is, of course, a very convenient outlook to to suggest that the most scientific thing uh, is to just to accept the status quo, essentially. It's very convenient for the powers that be. <clears throat> now, this, this point is also dismissed for its alleged fatalism, which means to say Marxism is accused of eliminating human agency. Uh, Marxism is painted as a sort of cold, uh, mechanical ideology that has no role for human consciousness. Uh, in this view, Marxism has, you know, history has already been decided and we have no free will to change history right we cannot do anything to change the course of history uh, we, we have no choice essentially we are basically prisoners of the iron laws of history in this criticism so what these criticisms reveal is a typical one-sidedness an inability to think dialectically in terms of contradictions and the interpenetration of opposites what we are given is this notion that history is either absolutely one kind of thing or absolutely another. It is either absolutely rigidly determined 
and that's of course Marxism is put into that category um, and there's no possibility of changing anything or it is a completely unwritten book and each generation and each individual has freedom to change it however they please basically those are the two views of history that you can have apparently these two poles are both wrong in their one-sided extremes um you know we can call them fatalism and voluntarism if you like or determinism and sheer randomness if you like as, as views on human history now let's look at this voluntaristic conception which is obviously that is the point of view that these attacks are coming from this view that we can make history as we please and we have free will to do so just as much as as we want to postmodernism of course is a form of this um because it denies lawfulness in history and it denies development it denies progress there's no particular direction to history uh, and there's no overarching law that we can understand such as you know explained in historical materialism there's no meta-narrative and any claim of a meta-narrative is false or is meaningless according to these people but there's plenty of other examples of this voluntarism in a way all of the sort of the the, the views of history in terms of great men are, are, are an example of this you know this trend in historical writing that t takes up a, a period of history and just describes the actions uh, and the ideologies of the main people who carried out these actions basically uh, and in the 18th century this was quite a i think was was the main kind of conception of history an idealist conception of history that since history was carried out by conscious beings by humans uh, it was defined and driven by the ideas that these people had and of course by the main proponents of these ideas by the great men essentially but we still have this today i mean a lot of mainstream histories of anything so if you were to take up a, a book about the history of thatcherism you would often find it has this form it just basically would talk about the character of thatcher her iron determination you know all of these things would be kind of essentially that would be the reason that thatcherism happened because of these her character and her upbringing there's lots of kind of pop histories of you know of fascism that try examine the upbringing of hitler and maybe speculate as to if he got accepted into that art school would he have not had that complex and would he therefore not have carried out uh, the holocaust um you know th th this is a very common approach to history right um that it's not usually made explicit but it, it is is very common we see it very recently in the celebrated films of adam curtis who just had an, a massive film series on the bbc he's quite celebrated by people, a lot of people on the left as well that series begins and ends on a quotation from uh, the anarchist david graeber and the quotation is the following the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is just something we make and could just as easily make something different and throughout his work, Adam Curtis, that is, uh, which is very historical in its nature, it describes recent history, basically. This is it's all about the great individuals. So the recent one is various great individuals like Jiang Qing, the wife of Mao Zedong. These people are set up and their, their history and their psychology is explained. And it, the implication is that things like the age of individualism, as he sees it, uh, happened just because of these prominent individuals and the ideas that they had. 
<clears throat> and hence, of course, it would follow, as he says, as he approvingly quotes David Graeber, we can just as easily make history in some other way. Because, of course, if it was made in this way, just because some people happen to have some ideas, we can happen to have some other ideas and make it in a different way. And therefore, of course, improve society. Now, this worldview uh, of course, sets itself up as, you know, having a very lofty view of human nature. Um, you know, it, it, the way it describes itself is that uh, free, that they venerate free will, uh, whereas the Marxists have a very, you know, look down upon humans and see humans as just sort of economic automatons with no independence, with no agency. And so it very much opposes itself to fatalism and, and it paints itself in these vivid colours. However, ironically, actually, the one-sided errors of this worldview put it back into the camp, unconsciously anyway, uh, of, of fatalism. Because, of course, if, if history is made by individuals, and if, if anything is possible, if it's an unwritten book, and we can change it however we please, if we only realise that we had that freedom, the obvious question to ask is, you know, if we can make a better society simply by having these ideas, why don't we? Why don't we? And of course, it's not the first time people have had ideas about having a better society. Many people in history have, have, have suggested that we should do this. But it hasn't happened. We still live in a class society with untold injustices everywhere. So why on earth don't we all just live better, basically, and have better, nicer ideas? In a sense, you know, one concrete example of this, by the way, would be the the idea put forward by left reformists that, you know, austerity is an ideological choice, that it hasn't happened out of any necessity. It's simply because of the bad ideas. And we simply have to have better ideas. Essentially, that's that, that's their position. Um, if, in fact, you know, there's no cause and effect, that we're not strictly determined as individuals and as a society to behave in one way or another, and we can just choose to be different, then what actually appears to be this, you know, lofty philosophy of human history actually, you know, reduces everything to caprice, just to arbitrariness. We haven't done something because we had we were caused to do so or because economic conditions made that the best or the overwhelmingly most likely course of events. No, we do things simply because, well, who knows why? We just happen to have those ideas. In this worldview, history appears arbitrary and baffling, inexplicable. And in turn, there's no way of understanding how we can make sure that our better ideas, which we're propagating now, can be taken up and be the main ideas. They might say something like this David Graeber quote, we, we don't realise it, but we can just make a better society because it's only a human endeavour in the end anyway. So why don't we just make a better society? But in the end, we don't make a better society. People have been saying this for a long time, as I've said, and they end up being baffled as to why that is the case. They cannot understand why their ideas haven't been taken up. Or if they are taken up, they cannot guarantee that they will remain being taken up and that worse ideas won't come and overtake them and lead back to oppression. So <clears throat> the only strategy they really have is to just hope that other people take up these nice ideas, these more lofty ideals of, of, I don't know, equality or whatever they happen to be. So in the end, this outlook ends up being baffled as to why, why history is the way that it is. And so history once again appears to these people as just 
as in the words, famous words of Henry Ford, just one damn thing after another. Or as Gibbon said, it, the, the famous historian, history is just little more than the register of the crimes, follies and misfortunes of mankind. And so the regular, for example, crises of capitalism that afflict capitalism appear as natural disasters, basically as something totally out of our control, as perhaps just if if we put history down to the ideas that people have, the bad ideas that people have, then the, caf the crises of capitalism that periodically happen appear to happen just because there's a wave of greed and short-sightedness that washes over society from time to time. There's no explanation as to the necessity or the logic of these events and why they take place. And therefore they appear as inexplicable afflictions imposed onto society. Um, and, and therefore this just is a, reproduces the alienation of capitalism that they claim to overcome, this sense of having no control over our fate, that we just watch the world burn and we don't really understand why so many awful things happen. And therefore, in this worldview, we actually remain prisoners of history. There's nothing we can do about it other than to hope for something better. So it might claim to reject fatalism and to have this wonderful idea that we can change everything, but it turns out to really have nothing to say about that. We Marxists, of course, subscribe to science and to materialism. For us, there's no spiritual realm separate from the material world, and humans, with their ideas, are physical things, obviously, and our ideas express the interests and the experiences that we have. They don't create those experiences. They don't create the world at all. It's the other way around. And we insist that history is neither random and inexplicable, nor is it designed in advance by a God and meant to happen in a certain way. It follows that we can understand history because we ourselves are natural beings. We are subject to the laws of nature, obviously, in the way we have to survive. And therefore, ultimately, human society is a natural thing. Of course, it's different from other natural things, but it is a part of nature. And like anything else in nature, it can be studied. It has regularity. It has patterns. It isn't arbitrary. And not only this, but human society does feature progress. Um, now, many object to this, as again, as discussed quite a bit in the previous session. They find it vaguely odious that the idea of it sounds a bit imperialistic, a bit racist, you know, about it sounds like we're claiming that, you know, the most advanced people in the world are are better, which is not at all what it means, by the way. But just, you know, on, on in terms of that rejection, do we really think that there's no progress in human history, that there's no regularity? So might it be that if we somehow repeated history, that the first humans to appear, the first humans to evolve, might immediately set up capitalism and urban societies and all of, you know, zero-hour contracts and all the things that we have with that today. Might that just suddenly happen? Or would we have to start with hunting and gathering and build our way up? Or might we have a capitalist society and might that society have a, a revolution? But it turns out that the aim of that revolution was just to reinstitute feudalism and for us all to return to serfdom and living in the countryside. Would that happen? Is that very likely? I think we can all see it clearly isn't. So there is lawfulness, regularity and progress in society. It's not a value judgment. It's simply an understanding of the way that things are and must be. Society 
of course, doesn't progress in a simple way or in a, a straight line. It's not just a perfect march to liberation. Of course not. And that's far more complex than that and far more f- full of deviations and, and mistakes, if you like. But it does have causes. It does obey laws. And we can understand those things. And therefore, freedom, genuine freedom, isn't this freedom from causation, which just means that we are senseless in our behavior, that we just do things for no particular reason. It means freedom. Freedom means understanding the necessity, understanding lawfulness, as Hegel put it, the recognition of necessity. We cannot escape lawfulness. We cannot just dream away reality, but we can understand it and therefore change it to suit our interests and so in terms of society that means we can understand why capitalism goes into crisis and we can understand what the solution to that is and organize to do it and therefore we have the freedom to build a better society but only if we have that understanding now from what i've said it may sound as if well actually yes marxism is fatalistic because i'm laying a lot of stress on the lawfulness and 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 the progress of society so doesn't that just confirm that that argument or that um that attack and therefore why bother fighting for socialism right because i seem to be saying it's inevitable it will just come about because of the laws of history well let's discuss what fatalism is and what i think the errors of it are so fatalism of course could have many different forms basically it just means that there is a fate uh, that it's guaranteed that that history or events will will end in a certain way um <clears throat> in terms of materialist fatalism because of course religious is religion is usually a form of that uh but the materialist fatalism developed in the in the 18th century uh, and it was actually a step forward because it was a, 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 an attempt to understand the lawfulness of, of history and, and, and to treat it scientifically. Um, but it, it was limited, shall we say. The most famous example of it is Laplace, uh, who said that um, if, if we could only know the position and the velocity of every single particle in the universe and the laws that they obey, we could predict everything for all eternity, you know, not just in society, but in nature. And this we call absolute determinism. Um, you know, everything can be foreseen in advance and it is guaranteed to end in a certain way. Now, the Marxist caricature of this, in other words, people would set up Marxism as a form of this. What, what it would be is something along the lines that the economic laws are the only laws that determine society. And we've understood them fully and we've foreseen exactly how they will play out and they they guarantee of course socialism there's no room for accident in this socialism is definitely is it is inevitable it's coming because the iron laws of economics guarantee it and it's just you know it's just a matter of time basically now this worldview is excessively simplistic and has a mechanical and i think a kind of fetishistic understanding of lawfulness which i will explain what that mean? What I mean by that? It leaves no role for consciousness at all. The way that it, the trouble with it is the way that it sees consciousness is just as as an effect and not a cause. It's like you know the froth thrown up by the currents of the ocean. It doesn't influence anything. It doesn't change anything by its presence. It's simply an effect. It's sort of passive effect, a bit like you know, um, you know human waste you know when we go to the toilet it's just something that is happens to 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 appear but it doesn't uh doesn't 
play any r real role, doesn't change anything. Trotsky in his philosophical notebooks, which weren't intended for publication, but they were later on published, interestingly criticizes this view, not in terms of history, but in terms of consciousness. Says that he says that obviously he is a materialist, but he says that our consciousness isn't determined by our physiology, but by society. And he said if it was determined by our physiology, in other words, if it was, you know, just purely an effect what he means is it's just an effect and it doesn't cause our physiology to do anything then it would just be an in a, a, a very expensive and in terms of energy it would be a very very expensive thing you know because it, the brain consumes a lot of energy and why do that if, if it doesn't change anything by its presence if it's just an effect and actually there are many scientists this is a very common error in scientific thinking this kind of uh, uh, this reductionism to the sort of base laws of everything um and this this sort of rigid determinism for example paul churchland who is a, a prominent um sort of a philosopher of mind and i think he's also a neuroscientist he says he is a subscriber to eliminative materialism and his actual position is that human beliefs do not exist that all that they what we call beliefs like believing you know love or happiness or whatever or you know ideals basically are all that they, there actually is is just neurons firing in your brain and it's an illusion that we have a belief that sort of guides anything all you need to do to understand human thought and behavior is to understand the laws of of neurons and therefore, consciousness has no role. It's just an effect. It, and a lot of scientists say this kind of thing. I've seen other articles saying consciousness is just a fluky byproduct of our constitution. It's, it's, it's just a meaningless thing. It's just a sort of weird freak of nature that doesn't do anything. Um, now, and I think that this, this sort of mechanical determinism in history has the same attitude towards consciousness. It sees it as just... Uh, we're not really adding anything it's just we just have the economic laws of history um, and they just play out and basically the ideas that we have about them are just unnecessary kind of you know froth on the surface and but the question therefore would be well why bother having these ideas why is so much effort put into creating ideologies and preaching them and why do all classes form in history parties or political leaders to fight for their interests and why do they pay such attention to the ideological battle that they wage <clears throat> the things this is a very one-sided view and marxism uh, is it, which is not Marxist and doesn't actually explain these things. For example, if history is determined exclusively by these economic laws, um, then then it would be somewhat of a mystery why they actually work the way that they do. You know, what, who who is making all of this happen and why? To give a, a sense of what I mean by this, I'm going to quote uh, Bismarck, who is I'm taking the quote from um, from Plekhanov in his famous book or pamphlet. The role of the individual in history which is very relevant to this discussion and he quotes bismarck saying the following <clears throat> gentlemen we can neither ignore the history of the past nor create the future i would like to warn you against the mistake that causes sorry that causes people to advance the hands of their clocks thinking that thereby they are hastening the passage of time and this is the important bit we cannot make history we must wait while it is being made and that's what I mean about the the sort of the the one sidedness of this. These these economic laws playing out, but sort of behind our backs, with with no actual human participation or consciousness. Where does their power derive from then? 
who is making history and why um and i think there's actually a kind of there is a kind of quasi religious element to this to this um to this philosophy and it has nothing in common with marxism marx always combated this view he famous there's a quite a famous quote of his from the, the holy family way which is an early work by him he says the following in it history does nothing it possesses no immense wealth it wages no battles it is man um sorry it is man real living man who does all that who possesses and fights history is not as it were a person apart using man as a means to achieve its own aims history is nothing but the activity of man pursuing his aims so we are not puppets for economic laws somewhere else that make us do things against our will or with no conscious participation but of course these individual and marx does mean when he says man he means individual men and women he doesn't mean some abstract man <laughs> he means actual real concrete individuals but of course concrete individuals are unpredictable you know and they are unlike so even you know capitalists of course don't aren't all like perfect capitalists they deviate from the norm in various ways and the same for workers people are unique and they are unpredictable in in their details so then does this mean that what marx is, is saying is really marx is a voluntarist he's saying well history is made by concrete individuals and of course these individuals do their own thing and therefore is he saying that you know history is just simply what we make of it there's no laws of history there's no necessity after all it's just what we as individuals actually decide to do and therefore it's all about our ideas and what we decide well i think to understand this more we have to delve into the question of accident and what is accident in the philosophical sense of the term now it's it's often pointed out by people that there's an enormous amount of accident in history and it's quite a funny game that you can play where you sort of pick uh, an enormous turning point in history and then you you sort of find how actually that that just this one little random thing could have made that not happen famous examples of it is Franz Ferdinand being shot and if his you know if his if the car he was in was just a little bit later then he wouldn't have been shot and therefore allegedly world war 1 would never have happened which of course did change human history in a very significant way or i don't know like you could just pick anything really i mean a more recent example would be maybe trump and um you know people say that alleged that his softness uh, his, his you know pushing american foreign policy into a soft position on Russia was because there happened to be an incriminating videotape that Putin had of Trump in Russia of him doing shall we say obscene acts um now i don't know if that's true it probably isn't true but it could have been true and that it really could have been something that determined the what american foreign policy was we're all familiar i think with this idea that huge turning points in history really do seem to have been changed by the chance characteristics of individuals or by just even more accidental things like whether or not they were late for an event or something um and that is true right that that that, that is the case right we are not guaranteed you know history doesn't select people and make sure that they're in the right place at the right time for something to happen as marx says there is no such thing as history in that sense it is not a guiding principle it's not a kind of godly figure moving us around so how then can we speak of necessity if this is the case in history where is the necessity 
<clears throat> what we have to ask ourselves is, is what then is the relationship between necessity and chance or necessity and accident? And this takes us to Hegel, who brilliantly demonstrated the dialectical interdependence of necessity and accident. As he said it, necessity expresses itself in accident. Most people tend to see the two as absolute opposites that have nothing to do with each other. And history is either necessary and it has to happen in this way, or it is accident. And it's just one damn thing after another, as Ford said. But actually, the two go together. They are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable from one another. And they express themselves through one another, which may sound difficult to understand, but I will explain that. But it's interesting to note that it was Hegel who said this, because those who accuse Marxism of being teleological or fatalistic would often say that that comes from Hegel, because Hegel was this kind of guy, very teleological. You know, For Hegel, all of history is the unfolding of the absolute idea and this kind of mystical religious view that he had and it's true that he did think that but Hegel is a contradictory philosopher because he also brilliantly describes the nature of necessity and that necessity does not work in that kind of godlike way so what does that mean well Hegel said that the law or, or the universal the lawfulness of something the necessity of something basically is what he means is always a result in other words, it doesn't produce reality. It is the result of reality playing out, or it is the way that reality has to play out. It's way that the parts, it's the way that the accidents add up in a sense. It's the overall necessity that emerges from this chaos. Order emerging from chaos basically is the idea. It doesn't pre-exist anything. Um, and this is, again, this is a fallacy in, in, in science you often find that still exists, I think, to this, this idea that, that laws somehow have a perfect, a separate objective existence outside of things and guide things, right? You know, Marx is alluding to that when he says that history doesn't exist. History is not a person apart, like a powerful person making things happen in a certain way. Uh, another example of it you would often get in science is, is, is um, in evolution. We often say, and I've heard, you know, scientists say this all the time, and they, they don't really mean it. But what they say is um, they'll talk about the organ of an animal. And I say it's designed to do something. It's designed to work in that way. Well, it's not designed. Evolution isn't a force that designs things in advance of them existing, you know, that says, well, let's have an animal that has this organ to do. No, evolution is is a process and, and it is a necessary process, of course. It's not something that can somehow be opted out of or not apply, but it is a process. It doesn't exist before and outside of the different um living beings that it is the expression of of their struggle to survive hegel put it like this um i'm gonna it's a relative don't worry it's a relatively straightforward quotation from hegel he said the universal or if you like the law of something does not exist externally to the outward eye as a universal the law of the celestial motions are not written in the sky even common sense is, is uh, in everyday matters is above the absurdity of setting a universal beside the particulars. Would anyone who wished for fruit reject pear, uh, cherries, pears and grapes on the ground that they were cherries, pears or grapes and not fruits? 
In other words, what he's saying is there's no such thing as fruit as an object, it's, which is obvious, right? There's only concrete fruits of different kinds. But of course, those people who talk about history in that way or, or all kinds of other forces, they do often talk about them as if they are, they, there is a perfect form of them that, that sort of intervenes in events to make sure that they happen in a certain way. A way of thinking about it, a good example always to use because it's very straightforward is water. And a body of water is wet, you know, it has the properties of liquidity, which are universal laws. We can describe those laws and understand how they work in a predictable way. But where is that wetness? Where does it, does it exist somehow outside of the water? And is it breathed into the water to make it behave in that way? Obviously not. It has no separate existence from the water itself and the parts that make it up. But of course, none of those parts of the water are wet a water molecule is not in itself in any way wet um and you know it very much just does its own thing it's not trying to be wet it's not being guided by some mystical force of wetness it is just going with the, the you know with its own you know course of events if you like interacting with its surroundings and it's unpredictable you can't predict the exact movement of any molecule it's far too complex subject to far too many accidental uh, forces that uh, you just simply can't predict so does that mean there's no such thing as wetness that we can't predict the body the behavior of a body of water that it doesn't have certain properties that we can identify of course that's not the case so what we have is a dialectical interplay between necessity and chance at different levels, basically. And Engels took this idea of Hegel up uh, very well, and he des describes in Dialectics of Nature, an unpublished book of his, obviously it's now published and I would strongly recommend it. He talks about, in a really brilliant passage, about this kind of absolute determinism, this fatalism. Um, and what he says about it is that it tries to force everything in existence under the category of necessity in a perfect sort of way. But in doing so, it doesn't make everything necessary. It makes everything accidental. Um, and he gives the example of like a pea pod. He says a pea pod basically can have six peas in it. It can have five. And why does it have one and not the other in one particular case? If you wanted to, you could obviously try to find it out and of course it is caused right it's not absolutely random that it's happened there will be particular reasons for it and he takes up therefore the question of cause and effect which is a closely related question to what we're talking about and we we tend to think in philosophy about cause and effect uh as as if it's a line of one cause and effect and that has another that causes something else and it's just a simple line that you can understand but of course that's not how cause and effect works at all everything is affected by everything else so in actual fact Engels points out if you wanted to work out why what caused this pea pod to have six peas and not five there wouldn't be one cause to it there'd actually be an infinity of causes in fact even the most bizarre unrelated things might in some way um, have actually given rise to that perhaps you know some 
a war in another part of the world might have slightly warmed the temperature in that place that was just enough to cause it you know etc in fact to to really trace it would just be an, you could never do it there just there is infinite cause and effect behind everything so what we actually have is universal causation at play with really any given thing nothing exists in isolation or just has one line behind it giving rise to it everything is interacting with everything else uh, in the universe and out of this therefore certain certain patterns do emerge certain regular features that we can identify but what Engels points out is that um of course we cannot there's no question of actually chasing uh, tracing the, the the chain of cause and effect in any of these cases as he says so he says we are we end up just as wise in one as the other and the so-called so necessity remains an empty phrase and with it chance remains what it was before in other words because we can't actually find we can never get to the bottom of this chain of cause and effect we might say that it was caused and like this is the same for everything and like Laplace said we can if we understand all of these causes we can find out everything that will ever happen exactly correctly but of course we never can for any even something as incidental as the number of peas in a pod and therefore um we don't understand anything from this approach. No, it's just a, an assertion that things are caused, which of course is, is true. It doesn't tell us anything about why things have to happen in a particular way and not another. Uh, it's just a bare assertion that things must be caused. So in other words, there are levels of causation, right? And the cause, the, what we really mean by necessity is not just something having a cause, but the more universal causes that operate on a broad level, the things that are generalizable, if you like. So, you know, the fact that objects fall to the ground on the planet Earth, that is obviously generalizable. It is necessary and we can understand the reasons for it, why it applies generally. You know, the fact that earthquakes take place, there are clear laws behind that and we can understand where they tend to take place. The fact that capitalism goes into crisis, of course, is like that as well. We can understand why that happens. Marx explained it. And, um, you know, we can understand roughly how often it tends to happen, for example. Um, so th this is what we really mean by necessity, not just the, 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 the most incidental level of causation imaginable. Um, and this understanding has become increasingly important to science. So, for example, with things like chaos theory or complexity theory, which study complex systems and find, you know, the sort of predictability and patterns that emerge in these complex systems without making the parts of them determined or, or rather predictable. A classic example is the weather. We cannot predict what the weather will be like on this day a year from now in Britain. We, see, we simply cannot predict it. I mean, it, it's not even like we have a, an, a good idea, but no, like it literally could be raining or sunny, which are the, the you know, extreme opposite in a sense. It could be relatively warm or, or relatively cold. We cannot know at all what it will be like in a year's time. It really could be any of those. It's simply too complex to be able to predict. Um, and and But the point about that kind of scientific understanding, which very much closely correlates Marxist philosophy, is that even though uh, we cannot predict these particulars, at the same time, predictability does emerge at the overall level. So we can understand how the weather behaves and we can know that the weather in Britain has certain sort of predictable features. In other words, we know that it's not going to be like the Sahara. We might not know if it's going to be, you know, 14 degrees or 21 degrees, but it's not going to be 
50 degrees celsius and you know blazing sunshine you know what i mean so there's there's <laughs> overall over a period of time actually the system obeys very predictable properties human society is very much like that you cannot know if somebody will die or not even the healthiest person could die the following day for a completely accidental reason but over time a society has a very predictable level of deaths that is something that has actually been used this year with the coronavirus pandemic to show how many people have died it's a very reliable indicator because the excess deaths is a, a you know is, is a rely the death rate is so predictable that that tells us how many people have died as a result of the pandemic um <clears throat> so in other words there is there is a sort of constant dialectical interaction between necessity and chance and I have. I would like to make a, a, a criticism of of some Marxists. I think sometimes put this in a wrong way. So, discussing the role of chance in things is possible to overemphasize that. I think that sometimes people talk about the chance that you know whether or not this person was involved in a political event, or whether or not you know uh, the weather was a certain way. It's possible to overemphasize that and make it out to be absolutely random. I think there's no such thing as absolute randomness. And if that was the case, because I know I've said that things are unpredictable, completely unpredictable, whether the weather will be this way or that. But that's not quite true, because it is predictable, actually. It's not going to be, like I said, it's not going to be like the Sahara. It's not going to be like the Antarctic. There's a, li a limit, basically, to how much things deviate from the norm, to, if you like, how random things are, even the most incidental thing. Um, and that applies to human society as well. And if that wasn't the case, then how would the necessity even emerge? How could we say that there was a very reliable pattern or regularity to these things? Because if all of the parts that make these things up happened in the most random way imaginable, totally unpredictable, without any sense to it at all, then of course there would be no pattern. The point is that, there, that there's a relative degree of randomness. Um, and that the reason for that is that there is no you know, guiding force of history, if you like outside of us that that sort of makes a perfect revolutionary leader because history needs a revolution history can only work through the real individuals as marx says and those real individuals of course are going to have all kinds of features they're going to be affected by all kinds of things they don't have anything to do with politics you know you know could be to do with their health it could be to do with their upbringing all kinds of very specific details which of course you can't predict and that will have an effect on history uh, if they come to play an important role their individual personality of course will play an important role that we can't predict in advance but the important point is these people are only so random in other words people do are types if you like most people belonging to a certain class actually do think along the lines of that class you know pe that people do vote in certain ways for example and of course they have to do so in order to survive within that class if you were to take a, a, a political leader that played a counter-revolutionary or a revolutionary role somebody who leads a revolution or leads a counter-revolution yes they're going to have unpredictable features but if you look closer, first of all, a lot of those features turn out not to be as unpredictable or as meaningless as you thought. Take the case of Trump, the example I gave earlier on, uh, and his, you know, alleged obscene acts in Moscow that <laughs> allowed the uh, Putin to have to basically blackmail him, allegedly. Well, actually, if that were true, it's not even that surprising, really, for a member of the American ruling class to get up to that sort of stuff. 
um, you know, it's it does actually tell us something about it. In other words, people do subscribe to types, basically. People are not totally unpredictable. And of course, there are more unpredictable things than that. But still, um, people, you know, there is a, in other words, there's a limit to how much people deviate from the norm in most cases. Moreover, if you're going to play a role in history, if you're going to become a political leader of a revolution or a counter-revolution, of course, society and the laws of society are going to demand certain things from you. And uh, that is going to mean that you're going to have, even if you, you do have a very particular personality, it's going to require you to behave in a certain way because you don't exist in isolation. You exist in society. So what is this determinism then? And how does it emerge from all of these unpredictable events? Um, we aren't economic determinists in the sense of economics is the only force in history and it's somehow outside of society or separate from the other things. All aspects of society influence everything else and culture can influence things. You know, the very particular culture of a country might retard a revolution or speed one up, for example. There's, there's you know, anything can influence anything else. However, in the in this kind of maelstrom of noise and chaos in society, if you like, one factor does stand out as particularly important, and that is the economic factor. It is true that economics plays a decisive role in the long run, although not the only role. How do we understand this? Well, I'd like to give a couple of relatively lengthy quotations from Engels in letters that he wrote. Um, I apologise for the length, but I think that they're important. The first one is as follows. He said, men make their history themselves, a little bit like Marx's earlier point about history doesn't exist as such as only real individuals. Men make their history themselves, but not as yet with a collective will or according to a collective plan or even in a definitely defined, defined given society. Their efforts clash. And for that very reason, all such societies are governed by necessity, which is supplemented by and appears under the forms of accident. The necessity which here asserts itself amid all accident is again ultimately economic necessity. The second one I'd like to give is as follows. For what each individual wills is obstructed by everybody else, and what emerges is something that no one willed. But from the fact that the wills of individuals, each of whom desires what he is impelled to by his physical constitution and external, in the last resort, economic circumstances, do not attain what they want, but are merged into an aggregate mean, a common resultant, that it must not be concluded from that, that they are equal to zero. On the contrary, each person contributes to the resultant and is to this extent included in it. So here Engels has both sides, and I'd like in particular to stress one thing, this point he makes about what they are, they are impelled to will a certain thing by their physical constitution and in economic circumstances. So yes, we are all individuals and no historical force sort of somehow forces us to behave in a certain way or to make to be a perfect revolutionary or counter-revolutionary or, or whatever. Of course, we are individuals with our own particular desires. But actually, we are all physical beings of the same broad type. We are all human beings, in other words. We all occupy the same planet and we have to basically survive in more or less the same way. We have to produce ourselves and reproduce ourselves. We have to, you know, exist economically. We have to consume things, obviously, to survive. And that forces us 
in the same kind of way as each other into definite economic relations with each other, as Marx explained. We cannot simply will away society. We can't just, you know, do whatever we want. We can't, oh, I fancy being a serf or a feudal lord, so I'll just do that. Or I fa- even in this society, I fancy being a capitalist. I'll just become a capitalist. Obviously, you can't simply do that, nor can you just decide not to eat and just somehow kind of float away into some ethereal existence (laughs) you'll just die obviously right so that obliges us to enter into relations with each other economic relations fundamentally and of course the given development of society the historical development of primarily development of the means of production that is all of the prior acts of people throughout history to do, to invent new things new ways of producing things basically that prehistory of that taking place before our existence means that the, the kind of society we enter into the kind of economic relations we must enter into to survive already has a definite form and today of course that's capitalism right and and we cannot escape that So whilst, yes, we do pursue our own aims and in the detail that is unpredictable, it's only so unpredictable, right? We are all basically forced into this system and to sort of behave in a certain predictable way into it. And a very obvious example of the fact is that a capitalist, no matter what they think, no matter what their values are, is obliged to exploit workers. A capitalist cannot survive without doing that because they will go out of business. They have to do that, even if they don't want to, even if they have the, the, the nicest, most progressive values you can imagine. So at the end of the day, this necessity is there. It, it appears, if you like, amidst all of these accidents, and it's important to stress the accidents are relative accidents, right? Uh, the, the sort of individual personalities involved are only relatively different. Um, now, <clears throat> in terms of how this plays out in history, it's important we don't have a mechanical view that there are economic events, which are the most important ones. And then because we admit that other things can affect history, like culture, or religion or something that you also have these events as well where these change history but they're less they're always less important than the economic events i think that's a bit mechanical and that's not exactly right although i would say that economic events the main economic events are the most important ones Uh, in other words things like economic crises under capitalism the crises of the 70s and of 2008 completely changed the political and economic thinking of the bourgeoisie in a way that I think had a a force that it wouldn't have had if it wasn't an economic one, if you see what I mean. And that that really, the major shifts in recent history, I do see as being driven by economic forces, definitely. But I think it's more than that. Even the, um, in my opinion, even the the allegedly sort of non-economic events, actually obviously still are determined economically in a certain sense. So take an example of... um, the two the referendums we've had in Ireland recently over abortion and um, same-sex marriage these are obviously not economic things although perhaps the crisis that Ireland endured and after the 2008 crisis you know the, the the banking crisis may have obviously in some way influenced that mood I think it's probably very likely but obviously in the main those did change Irish history they are very significant events but they're largely to do with religion um and you know the family and, and and the ideology that surrounds that so it's not economic however is it possible to imagine you would have had these referenda in ireland 500 years ago would medieval ireland have had a referendum on same-sex marriage or on the right to abortion 
I mean, it's, it's, it's enough to ask the question to realise the absurdity of it. Clearly not. The fact that people live in urban societies, they have the internet, the fact that you have emigration and immigration, people living in other societies and picking up the culture and the values of other societies, the fact that women have become more economically independent in modern Irish society thanks to economic development. You know, all of these things obviously play a huge role, as well as the fact you simply didn't have referendums in uh, medieval Europe for obvious reasons you know so even something that appears at first glance to have not really anything to do with economics um, e e even an economic crisis in some way creating a certain mood even ignoring that it's still shaped by the economic foundations of society in a very profound way so that is the kind of the determinism that's how we understand the determinism of society but not in a direct and a mechanical way like there's a for an economic god guiding uh, with a pre-worked out plan of history sort of making us all do things in some way um so yes each individual has a role to play and can change history and we cannot predict or know how that will happen the, the understanding the laws of, of of society and there are laws of society does not mean you can just fold your hands and wait for them to play out because you're part of society society isn't this other thing outside of all the concrete humans that make it up it's made up of nothing but people like you although the ability for you to influence it is obviously greatly restricted by the form of society that you live in so when when we say that socialism is necessary and we do believe that socialism is necessary or even inevitable how do we mean that it we mean it in this in this dialectical sense it's not just a good idea that uh, that you can or cannot have at any point in history it's a product of economic development that does tend in a certain direction and has to the laws of history do exist indeed um and as marx said communism is like the riddle of history solved in other words what he means is that the class struggle and economic development tend in, in to, to increasingly developed forms and have to do so over time and build up to a certain point that socialism is the only direction that things can go in so the solutions to facing us yes we have choice we do have political choice but that choice is very restricted so in, in facing the crisis of capitalism, the choice is essentially socialism or barbarism. Socialism is the alternative, right? You can't, we can't look at the crisis of capitalism and say, oh, let's go and um, let's go back and live in primitive communism. Let's live in, in you know, in a very small scale production. And let's just choose to do that and just somehow make it happen. No, that isn't possible. That is, that literally is not possible. The only alternative to socialism if capitalism is not to be changed into socialism is ultimately barbarism it's 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 you know in, in other words it's things like nuclear war you know it's and these things are possible ultimately uh, economic uh, sorry environmental catastrophe and of course you know um brutal and vicious counter-revolutions like we saw with the nazis that is definitely possible we don't think that it's you know 100 guaranteed that socialism will come about what we mean is that it isn't the necessary next step in social development so that is social development is not arbitrary that is, that is what we mean 
socialism is not inevitable in the, in the Laplacian sense, i.e. we've foreseen every single cause and we've understood perfectly the economic laws with such fine detail. We've understood how every factory is going to operate, what exactly when every crisis of overproduction will take place and exactly how this will affect the consciousness of every single individual such that we know that socialism is coming about and at this time. It does not mean that. What it means is that socialism is is not just a nice idea it is the next step that that, that society that capitalist society has laid the basis for but nobody will do it for us there isn't a god of history that will make this come about it's real concrete individuals that have to consciously fight for it that have to take that decision to fight for socialism and have the freedom to do so but that freedom is dependent upon the material conditions and understanding those conditions that capitalism has laid for us um, and I'll, I'll finish that. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, Please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.